0: Well, good morning. morning. Church family, I'm glad to be with you this morning. I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, My prayer this week has been, uh, why ever you're here, whether it was by choice or happenstance or guilt, (laughs) um, my prayer is that God would bless you this morning, that He would open your ears and your hearts to hear His Word, that you would be changed by it. If you're a guest, want to say welcome. Uh, my name is John Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're just now joining us or you were on vacation last week, last few weeks, uh, we are now four weeks in to the study of Paul's first letter to Timothy. We left off last week with a discussion about the proper use of the law. You see, Paul is writing to Timothy about, about these false teachers that have arisen in Ephesus. And he is writing to warn Timothy about how these false teachers have been misusing the law in seeking to justify themselves through these myths manufactured out of these elements of Judaism. And so that's what, that's what Paul is warning Timothy about. He's saying, you see, the Mosaic law was not intended as a tool to justify yourself but as we talked about last week, to act as a mirror to show you your sin and to point you to the gospel, to Jesus Christ and to your need for a Savior. And so that's where we're going we're gonna to pick up this morning. We're going to continue down that. So let's dive in. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12-17. It says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he has judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I have received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your Word, for the chance to gather, to study, to hear from you. As we open your Word, Father, let us learn more about who you are, learn more about who we are and our need for you, Let the book live to us and speak to us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So as we get started this morning, what I want to do is circle back to the text I just read, specifically verse 15, and it says this, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, and this is the part I want you to let these words pierce your heart this morning. This is a simple truth. And most likely what we're about to read was, was a, a simplified doctrinal statement for these New Testament believers. Um, it, it almost acted like, like an early catechism. If you grew up doing catechisms or you know what that is, this is almost like an early catechismic statement for the early church. And it says this, and we should let it sink into our hearts as we read through the text this morning. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a simple truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a simple phrase, but such a profound impact. And that's where we're going to start this morning, and that's where I want to end and land the plane this morning, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so what we have as we, we open this text this morning, what we have is Paul using his, his testimony of his own conversion to contrast between what we saw last week, the proper use of the law. He wanted to contrast between the proper use of the law and then what these false teachers have, these misconceptions of the law. He's contrasting between the true gospel that saves and these false doctrines that these false teachers have that do nothing but condemn. And so how he goes about this comparison is he, he does so by dismantling their arguments of position and pedigree. You see, these false teachers were, were most likely, and it doesn't say this specifically, but these teachers that, that Paul is writing to Timothy about were most likely in a place of leadership in this church at Ephesus. They, they could have been elders um, because he, he says at the beginning that they, they spent time and they were desiring to preach or to teach and to be teachers. And then also later in the chapter, or later in the, the, the letter, he goes specifically into what a, a, a godly, Christ-centered elder and overseer looks like. And so what you have are, are these false teachers in, in a place of leadership and using their position to give themselves this authority. And ultimately what they're doing is, is distorting the gospel and misleading the people within this church into these erroneous beliefs. And so to make this contrast between the proper use of the law and what these false teachers were teaching, Paul doesn't rest upon his own authority. He could have said, listen, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Sit down, shut up. I know what I'm talking about. He doesn't go that route. Uh, He doesn't rest upon his own authority. What he does is he points out to Timothy and to these readers that the the basis, the grounding for his authority. Appointment, and that's the word he uses, he was appointed to service, that his basis for it, his grounding for this appointment in his position comes from something very different. So look at verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to service. He acknowledges that his, his appointment to service is not contingent upon anything he, he has done or will do. And we need to read this carefully because the, the English, um, it can kind of jumble it together with all these uh, different tenses uh, in the Greek, but what you see is Paul is not saying that God, God looked forward in time and saw, saw that Saul would become Paul and would be useful to him. In, in faithful to the church and so he looked forward and judged him faithful, that's not what he's saying here. Although he, he could do this, right? He could see the future because he knows all things, he ordains the future, as Ephesians chapter one tells us. But but the idea of, of Paul being judged faithful is not contingent upon Paul's actions, whether past or future. It's not dependent on, on who, what Paul did or what Paul will do. No, this is dependent upon God, upon God's action. You see, Paul is judged faithful because it is actually God's sovereign choice in changing Saul to Paul that makes him faithful servant, a faithful servant. It is not who you are or even how well you serve or your potential abilities to serve but it is God choosing you and redeeming you in spite of yourself. God doesn't call and appoint us to service based on what we have done or will do, but he does it by his own sovereign will and love and pleasure. And it's interesting here, the, the, uh, the appointment that he was given, it doesn't say this was a position of leadership or of power, but one of service. It is to service that he has been called, not to leadership or power. His calling does not reek what you see. It does not reek of self-righteousness and self-justification, this position-seeking, power-seeking, fame-seeking way in which these false teachers were going about it. Who, as, as Paul says in, in verse one, or in chapter one and verse seven, that they are seeking to be teachers of the law without actually having the understanding to back it up? And so what we see here in, in, in verse 14 is, is Paul is saying that there is no basis within himself for the position he holds. There is no basis in Paul's abilities or in himself for his appointment from serv- to service, but it is entirely from God. That's why he says, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has judged me faithful. It is not dependent upon him, but entirely from God. And then he continues on as if to double down and said, let me make it more clear for you that it is not I and it is not what I have done. He continues on in verses 13 and 14. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So conventional wisdom will tell you that if you want your audience whatever that audience is, to listen to you. If you want to build a following or even secure a job, right? Like when you go in for an interview, you, you give them your pedigree, that about the author section, right? Um, it's supposed to be filled with, with awards, with accolades, with, with what you've accomplished, where you went to school, who you know, what good you've done. That, like, That's what you fill that section with. It's what you base your, your uh, audience's attention on. Like no one wants to go read m- my version of electrical engineering. I have no uh, award or authorship for that. It's the same kind of thing. You, you want to um, put that in there, put, put your degree, your accolades, what makes you the most qualified, the best candidate for this position, for this place of authority. But that's not the direction Paul goes. Imagine if you're interviewing for a new position in this, in this company where they ask you for a bit of background, right? The typical, tell me a little bit about your work history. I ask that question all the time at my last job when I was hiring people. Tell me a little bit about your work history. That was really, I haven't read your resume. That's beside the point. Um, (laughs) But uh, all cards on the table, that's really what it was. that's really what it was. Imagine you're in this interview, in this company, and they ask a bit about the background, this typical, where have you been, that kind of thing. And in, it's not a typical move to do what Paul does here and lead off with the worst about you. But listen to him. He leads off with blasphemy, with persecution, with, with insolent opponent, which other translations say a violent man. Like, imagine you're in that interview committee, right? Right? Imagine that. Listen, Paul, we, we'd love to have you come as a pastor for us. This would be a great thing. Tell us a little bit about what you've done in the past. Well, I've murdered some people, right? Because like, that's, that's what's happening here. He, he's like, I, I was a professional blasphemer, blasphemer for a while. There may have been some light persecution, right? That's what he's getting in this, getting to this. This is how he leads off with the truth of his past. But this is the truth. This is exactly who he was. He was not a good person before meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. You see, Paul was called Saul. And not only was he. Uh, a non-believer, an unbeliever. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. And just for a little bit of context for those words, like what that means, you can flip over to Acts 26, and what you're going to see is Paul before Agrippa. And you can see in verse 9, he says, I myself, as he's talking and giving Agrippa the story of who he was, Acts six nine he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was blaspheming the name of Christ. And more than that, he was putting people to death for believing in him. If you flip back a few passages back to Acts 22.4, you will see that he says this, I persecuted this way, which is what they called the church at the time. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women. He was the same Saul that looked on in approval as Stephen was martyred. With, with joy in his face, he was pleased to see these deaths unfold because he thought it glorified God. It's easy to gloss over that word persecution in, in, our, in our context. We don't see much of it here in the way other parts of the world do, but when we look at these descriptions of persecutions, you can see that he was putting to death on any he could put his hands on. And the rest, he was sending away to prison to be tortured for their belief in Christ Jesus. He not only did it, but he said he looked on in approval. He, he enjoyed the thrill of punishing those. This is what it means when he says he was an insolent opponent. He was a violent man. This was not like, okay, he was a decent fella here. He met Jesus, and now he's a little bit better over here. This was the worst possible guy if you were a follower of Christ. This was the all-consuming focus of Saul's life. In, verse, uh, in chapter 8 of Acts, it phrases it this way, that he, basically he was willing to travel. Like it wasn't confined to where he lived. He would go take this show on the road and go, and it says he was ravaging the church Anywhere he could go, entering houses, dragging out men and women, off to prison for their beliefs, this man was the worst of worst. That's what Paul's saying here. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, this man was the worst of worst, and yet. And yet God used him. Think of this. It is not who he was or what he had done. Clearly, he was a murderer of the church. He was sending countless people to the graves or to prison to suffer unspeakable things. And this is how he proclaims himself to these these people. This This is the background. This is his resume that he pours out, where you have these false teachers who say, look at me. And, and, and it talks about how in the first chapter they use these endless myths and genealogies, and I can only assume that they're trying to take parts of, of the Scripture and say, look, look how maybe, maybe I fit into this, and this is what makes me better than you. And, and, and he's, they're using the, the Old Testament law to justify themselves, and he says, I am not justified in myself. I am a sinful man, a broken man. This was what was so contrary to the message of these false teachers that were speaking into this church in Ephesus. These false teachers were pointing to who they were, to what they had done as their justification. But Paul was saying, guys, look at me. It is not me, clearly, because I am awful, but it is Christ in me. I was appointed to service not by my goodness, but by Christ's goodness. These false teachers were proclaiming all the while their position as justification, and Paul is proclaiming Jesus Christ, mercy and grace. It is mercy and grace. And he goes on and he says in verse 14 that this blasphemer, this murderer, a violent man, received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul is not saying that ignorance excuses sin. Don't hear that this morning. Ignorance is not an excuse for sin, and it certainly does not ensure forgiveness in any way. He is not saying that he has some sort of -of get-out-of-jail-free card because he just didn't know better. You know, the, you, you might be ignorant of the law, but you can still be held accountable to it. You see, this is confirming that Paul's salvation and con- con- conversion on that Damascus road was an act of divine grace. It was not out of obligation to the ignorant or to the uninformed, That God saves, but it is out of grace and mercy that He calls men to Himself. When He saves, He saves by grace. You see, our our Father's grace, He goes on to say, Our Father's grace is not merely sufficient, it's not good enough to get the job done, it's not even plentiful. He says it is overflowing. God's grace is overflowing. It is overly abundant for us. You see, when our Creator who, who abounds in steadfast love, that's what Exodus 34 tells us, right? It says the Lord our God is a merciful God gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. You see, when, when our, our Creator decides to set His favor and love on even the worst of sinners, right? even men like Paul, even the worst of sinners, when he, he decides to set his favor and love on those people, there is nothing that can keep him from turning that sinner into a saint. And so read, read verse 15 again. This is, this is where we, we started. It says, This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, Paul. Paul is saying, I, "I am the worst of sinners, and if Christ came, it is for it is for those like me." You see, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, not not to empower sinners to live a better life. Right? This is not not to empower sinners to save themselves. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is not to help sinners be the best that they can be on their own, train them, and set them free. This is not one of those things. Brothers and sisters, if if we could just have a, a, a a short little aside, this is the great lie that so many of us believe. Read these words again. Let them marinate in your heart. Meditate on them. Christ is not that little bit extra that you need. Christ is not just the the thing that gets you over the top, gets you the rest of the way to heaven. Christ came to the world to save sinners. We need the overflowing, abundant grace of Jesus Christ poured out upon us. We need to know that Christ came to save sinners. Paul knows this because he calls himself the worst of all of them. Think about what he's saying here. In the verses we read last week, right, it lists out all of these sinful things. You have, and just to to flip back to it, 9 through 11 of, of the same chapter, it says, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then he starts listing out these things, the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who uh, practice homosexuality, for the enslavers, the liars, the perjurers, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so he lists all those out, right? And then he puts himself, I am worse by far than any of these. I am a blasphemer, a murderer. And just for context, imagine what it takes for this man, Paul, to say these words. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees um, uh, spent their life avoiding the sinful and the profane. And not only was he a Pharisee, he says in other, in other parts of the New Testament that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You have this man who studied under uh, the, the most prominent teachers of the time. He was an ardent defender of the law. He was, in all accounts, the most devoted and stringent of Pharisees. And this man admits that he was the worst sinner of them all. You see, these Pharisees spent their lives striving for perfection. They wouldn't even eat or break bread with sinners, let alone stay with them as friends. You see, sinners were the worst in their eyes. Their sins made them unholy. That's how these Pharisees approached life. But Paul has understood that his sinfulness requires his need for grace, his need for a Savior. Brothers and sisters, you see that because of this radical change that ensued when Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul holds up his life as proof of God's intent for sending a son, his son, Paul is saying that the proper understanding of the law is that the law does not save you, but merely exposes sin sin and condemns you and can do only one thing, which is lead you to the only one who can forgive your sins and make you holy. A proper understanding of the law leads to this declaration that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and if the Lord could redeem Saul, the persecutor, the murderer, the violent man, then he could save anyone. And so Paul's declaration of, if you understand the law and you understand that it points to Jesus and points out your own sinfulness, as I have understood it, look at my life. Look at who I am. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was a blasphemer. I was persecuting the church. I was doing all these vile and disgusting things, yet Christ saved me. And this is why Paul saw his transformation as an example for all who would believe After his conversion, in verse 16 it goes on and says, But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, God was patient with Saul, preserving him even in his insolence, in his violent attacks so that he could accomplish his saving purpose. Understand that Paul did nothing to merit this meeting on the Damascus Road. He did nothing to merit his, or earn his salvation. This was purely so that God could accomplish his saving purposes and show mercy and love to his people. And guys, this is the way that he deals and has dealt with us. He has patiently endured our hatred of him as his enemies until he has made us his friends, right? That's what Romans 5, 8 says. It reminds us that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He patiently endured our hatred of him as enemies until the day that he made us his friends. Paul's response was not shame or ignorance, but rejoicing. Rejoicing in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so his his response to his own testimony of how God saved him despite of himself bubbles over into praise and that's how he ends this. He says in response to all that to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's response and our response to Christ saving us from our sins should be one of spontaneous praise. You see, the reminder today is simple. These false teachers that Timothy is being warned about were trying to distract to muddy the waters with religious requirements that were not the gospel. You see, the message is not what they were promoting. The message is not do better. The message is not be better. That's not the message. That's not what Christ came to tell you is to, hey, do better, buck up, sonny. That's not why he came. It is rather, rather that Christ is our better. We cannot live better until we have him. And so we are, we are singing a song uh, in a few minutes of, of praise for exactly how this Jesus Christ came to save these sinners. And it is a response to that. The song we're about to sing says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And it ends with, I will not boast in anything, right? No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast alone in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. You see, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, let these words sink into you this morning. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If you are approaching Christ just to top you off, like I've got this from here, I just, you know, okay, I could, I could do a little better. That's not it. You're, you're missing the point. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice and be glad because without him, Without him, you are dead. You are lost in sin. Stop trying to, to use Christ as a backstop for your self-righteousness. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And if you are not in Christ this morning, if you wandered in here and you don't know who this Jesus is, the call is here. Christ Jesus came to save you. As he has come for all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans reminds us. So at the very end of the service this morning, we're going to sing a song uh, called Something Better. Jesus is the something better that you have been looking for. It says you are greater, greater than anything I've ever known or seen and stronger than than the grave that once held me, your love is deeper and wider. In the highest place, be lifted higher still. You have always and will always be something greater. So if you have not been saved by the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus, if you are still, as Paul was, lost and ignorant of the truth and the mercy and grace waiting for you, then hear this, Christ came to save sinners. And that is from one sinner to another, right? This is not a church of perfect people that you wandered into this morning. I can attest we're pretty jacked up, right? Amen? (laughs) Somebody had a rough morning. Um, If you have not been saved by the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus, there is something greater waiting for you. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you. God, I thank you that it is not up to me, that I am not left to my own devices to find a way. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to save sinners. Sinners like me, like all of us, Father, I ask that you would open the hearts, the ears, the minds, of those in here who do not know you, that they would feel your loving call, feel the, the grace and mercy waiting for them. Feel the, the weight lifted off, off of them and born on your back, in the sun, on, on the back of your son, Jesus. Father, for my brothers and sisters in here, I pray that we would not rest upon our own powers, but that we would rest upon the grace and mercy of your Son, Jesus, that we would not try to go it alone and make the best of what we are, but that we would find our best in you. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.